we kind of do already treat politics as a game and entertainment. You know, what this game does in effect is a strange kind of alchemy that lets people indulge whatever me versus them impulses they may have. And in doing so, whether they want to or not, they're going to develop a more visceral understanding of what makes this stuff tick. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Elliot Nelson, a former reporter at the Huffington Post and co-founding editor and writer at HuffPost Hill and author of the book, The Beltway Bible. He's now founded a company called Wayside Press and is developing Political Arena, the first ever comprehensive video game universe set in US politics. We had a very good conversation about his move from journalism into political entrepreneurship and why he thinks a political video game might be successful and important for the first time ever. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Elliot Nelson. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Elliot, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Elliot Nelson. I am the founder and CEO of Wayside Press, which is developing Political Arena, uh, the first ever comprehensive video game universe set in U.S. politics. Prior to that, um, I was and like to think still am, uh, given the nature of what I'm doing, uh, a political journalist. I spent about 10 years at the Huffington Post uh, covering kind of every last corner of our politics I was, I think, best known uh, for starting and writing our evening newsletter tip sheet called HuffPost Hill. That was a kind of cheeky rundown of the day's events. And in that same vein, in 2016, St. Martin's Griffith published my book, The Beltway Bible. That was a also cheeky look at politics, but in this case, an A to Z guide to how our politics work from the inside out, featuring entries on more essential and fundamental things like how bills snake their way through Congress uh, to somewhat more silly, but no less serious things of, for example, how uh, White House officials skirt visitor log regulations and which coffee shops they prefer to do that in, in what I refer to as the West West Wing. And so the through line in my career has always been really, how do I make our politics, even the granular stuff that we don't necessarily see on CNN, really accessible to to a wide audience because I think until people start to develop a more intuitive and holistic understanding of this stuff, I think we're going to be incredibly handicapped um, as a democracy. We feel pretty handicapped right now. Do you come out of a family that was really political? What's the source of this long-time interest? Well, personally, I've always been a political uh, junkie or nerd. I was that kid who would come home from middle school and high school and watch Inside Politics on CNN back in the good old days of CNN with Bernard Shaw and Judy Woodruff. You can even watch old episodes of it on YouTube, and I occasionally will in a, a fit of painful nostalgia. But I, I do have the, the privilege of coming from a very politically aware family. My parents both come from Texas and had the fortune or misfortune, depending on how you want to frame it, of not necessarily fitting into the political or demographic mold of, of Texas in the 50s and 60s. My mom comes from a 
uh, Jewish family in Dallas. Uh, the famous story there is of my grandfather having a Kennedy Johnson bumper sticker and a brick promptly thrown through his windshield. I came from a family that loved politics, that, that was fascinated by politics, and, and I think really nurtured my interest in it as well. And you uh, studied politics at Wesleyan, right? I did. I, I studied government and international relations, more focused on the international relations. My entry into journalism was kind of roundabout. I uh, had a fellowship in D.C. at the Public Interest Research Group, PERG, right after college. And I, like a lot of people of my generation, this is 2008, was very much uh, inspired by the candidacy of Barack Obama, to say nothing of my past interest in politics. I had been motivated, one might even say sort of <laughs> uh, drugged by the show The West Wing into the promise of what politics can be. Uh, this, of course, was also the Great Recession. And so finding opportunities was not the easiest thing in the world. And so I bounced around from various odd jobs and fellowships and things for the first 18 months or so after college um, before through a really kind of circuitous series of events ended up at HuffPost where for a handsome sum of $500 a week and no benefits, I was uh, <laughs> invited to, to create HuffPost Hill. And luckily, I eventually got a bit more money than that and some benefits, but humble beginnings. You kind of have labeled yourself uh, by supporting Obama and uh, working for the Huffington Post as on one side of the aisle, which has become so divided these days. When you go about creating a political game, how much do you think about making it a bipartisan, nonpartisan, or partisan enterprise? I mean, it's such an important question, and it goes to the heart of what we're doing and why. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm very progressive. I think it's disingenuous when journalists pretend that they don't have political views. Um, we all are influenced by agendas and views and biases and opinions. My belief has always been that agendas should stop at the assignment desk. At the end of the day, what we choose to focus on, I think, is, 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 a, is a form of political opinionating um, on the journalistic level. But with political arena, and to give a quick rundown of the game, um, in political arena, which is both the title of the larger universe and the first game that we're developing that will be available for PCs and Macs, hopefully later this year, early next year, um, you create your own politician, just like you might create an athlete in a sports game or a wizard in a fantasy RPG game. You customize their views, their pet issues, their backgrounds, their personalities, their skills, and you enter them into a fully simulated political world, complete with legislating and campaigning and special interests and media cycles and interns who accidentally tweet inappropriate things from your social media account. The crux of the game, as one could argue in politics, is the accumulation and expenditure of power, which in this case is simulated with three currencies, money, which your audience does not need further explanation of, uh, political capital, which is a kind of deal-making, coalition-building uh, currency. Uh, and lastly, fame, which is very much about name recognition and bolstering turnout at rallies and town halls and so forth. And to your question about the partisanship nature, you know, I very much view this through the lens of journalism, right? Like the goal here is to create and to convey to a large audience an intuitive understanding of the system of politics. Now, we exist in an age, and this can be both frustrating and liberating as a journalist, where some basic notions of objectivity have become partisan. You know, there is no widespread or even narrow spread examples of voter fraud, right? In the case of this game, which is going to not only simulate the political process, but because of that, have to simulate the sort of outside events that can influence our media cycles and attention, we will have to have natural disasters, which often will disrupt the best laid political plans. And Anyone with even a passing understanding of global warming knows that natural disasters are going to be an increasingly common occurrence, um, sadly, and as such are going to be an increasingly disruptive phenomenon in our politics. This is a game where you can play as a Republican, you can play as a Democrat, you can uh, try and pass Medicare for all, you can dismantle the social safety net. But to your question, there are just certain issues that sadly, I guess you could say, are 
issues that aren't settled facts that I well, I think objectively or objectively are scientifically settled facts, certainly in the case of global warming, but in the body politic, uh, remain up, well, I don't want to say up for debate, but remain questioned. And we're not going to be wishy-washy on those. There is no widespread voter fraud. There is widespread institutional and inter- interpersonal discrimination. There are widespread efforts to limit access to the ballot box. Um, you know, even if these weren't my views or my beliefs or understandings, these are things that deeply impact political outcomes. And we are building, in effect, a political simulator. And if you don't account for why the turnout in Georgia is what it is, you're, you're not doing it right. All those years as a journalist, all those years covering the Hill, my experience is that journalists kind of come to a bit of an adversarial or, you know, outside looking in view of that world. And they see politicians with, uh, you know, kind of a murky lens. They're not always fans. What is your general take on the people that serve in the world of politics? You know, I think it's a mirror of how people view the media, to be honest. You know, people like to talk about the media as if it is this monolithic thing where we all gather every Friday for bagels at a coffee shop. You know, I mean, the media is a massive and uncentralized and messy thing with good actors and bad actors. It is a term that you know, the way most people frame it encompasses Fox News. And it is also a term that encompasses arcane industry publications. And my general view of the political world is one where I think the overwhelming number of people engaged in it are remarkably well-intentioned public servants. I do retain a journalist skepticism of most political actors, I think, as one should. In this game, in political arena, none of the politicians are real-life politicians. The demographics are real, the issues are real, the parties are real, um, the basic, the sort of trends and things are, are real. But to try and simulate or recreate what is publicly known about our elected officials would turn the game, I think, into an act of, of sort of propaganda. Um, as you and I, and I suspect most, if not all of your audience is aware, you know, only a fraction of the things, both good and bad, but at the end of the day, bad have been reported about a lot of our elected officials. Oftentimes these are stories that I simply cannot tell, you know, examples of, you know, sexual malfeasance told to me in confidence about a lawmaker who has yet to been me too. We all have these stories under our belts. And the fact is we all know that only a fraction of these things have been reported. Um, and to that end, both in terms of its framework within the game and my view of, of, of the body politic, look, I think your boilerplate political staffer is an incredibly engaged, passionate individual who is working way too many hours for not near enough pay one of the things that personally upsets me is every time I hear about a member of Congress returning their unused staff budget to the Treasury as some kind of act, as if our Congress isn't woefully understaffed. I mean, we have two senators from the state of California and, you know, what, a total of maybe 100 staff between them? I mean, it's insane. I think my regard of the political world is probably not too different from most journalists, which is that most staffers are genuinely well-intentioned people. The ones who end up taking an industry job, for example, are probably doing so less because of a 30% increase in pay, but because they want to see their family and not work 90 hours a week. But the fact is that power attracts often not great people. And I tend to need to be convinced of a, to use a term, principles, virtues, um, before I can assume them. What's your own relationship with the world of gaming? You must have played these games to be able to want to build one. Oh, what absolutely. got you going? Yeah. No, I'm I, I'm a lifelong f- fan of video games, both just the experience, but even I retain a childlike first principle excitement and sense of awe at the notion of this just being a medium in which you can interact with things, a medium that can recreate worlds. 
And I think, to be honest, the lingering, though thankfully dissipating stigma of video games as being a mindless escape for teenage boys in their basement is, is, is one that has, I think, prevented this medium from getting its, I think, intellectual respect and creative due. But to your question, I, I grew up playing games like SimCity and Civilization. Uh, I was inspired from the standpoint of this game as a piece of, of social utility by games like Oregon Trail, which managed to imbue Gen Xers and millennials with a knee-jerk understanding of what it is to ford the river and die of dysentery and overload your wagon with bison meat. And if a video game can familiarize, I mean, literally tens of millions, I, I think that franchise sold about 50 million units in its lifetime. If a video game can familiarize that many people with a relatively arcane corner of American history, there's no reason a video game about something, I think, far more compelling and, dare I say, sexiest politics can, can do the same. You're practicing as a journalist. What is the beginning of the idea that you want to make a game in this area? When does that first come to you? What ultimately inspired me to set about to try and realize this gaming universe were two kind of uh, interconnected things. One is just as a gamer, this was a game I always wanted to play and no one had made. To date, there just had not been a richly simulated, comprehensive video game universe about politics. There has been no SimCity or Sims or NBA 2K of politics. There have been some kind of modest attempts, you know, every four years in which a, a slew of, of run-for-president games where you move a bobblehead Elizabeth Warren around a map for a few turns are released. Uh, and then on the other end of things, from kind of an impact foundation side, you'll often get a lot of very dry, overly pedagogical, frankly not very fun games released that tend to be overly civic-y. And that's not to dismiss the notion of civics. That's precisely why we're doing this. But our inherent belief, and this is mine as a journalist and just my given career, is politics is inherently thrilling. Every last corner of it is, is, is weighted with significance and meaning. And people love to immerse themselves in worlds like that. And at a time when the world of politics is becoming ever more complicated, when the forces of disinformation and authoritarianism are becoming savvier and better funded, it is not just a want, but a need that people develop a more intuitive and holistic understanding of how our politics work. I think about your audience and I imagine, you know, you, you say the name Amy McGrath and they all kind of shudder. I mean, making our politics more efficient isn't just about developing software that gets voters to the polls, as important as that is, but it's also about making sure that our voters themselves have a real intuitive understanding of this stuff. I think sometimes we maybe overly index on quantitative analysis of our political problems when quite often a lot of them can also be very qualitative as well. And so I was inspired to do this both as a journalist who wants people to really have a sober, unobstructive view of, of how power is wielded in their country and also as a gamer who just thinks that would be a super fun game to play. I get that it's a good intersection of your interests, but I, I'm not clear on like when you thought, ooh, I, I want to make a game. I want to make a company to make a game. Like when does that happen and, and what's going on there? Yeah, it was, it was a bit of a, a long process. Um, the kernel of it was after the 2014 midterms sort of lame duck period of November and December. I had been out covering the campaign and not unlike campaign staffers, if you're on the trail as a journalist, it's a real kind of heady rush. And then there's kind of a boring come down after it. And I was sort of feeling quite idle. I had been playing a few video games and the thought had sort of flickered into my mind that you know, the mechanics of a lot of these games would fit in quite well with how politics works. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that kind of pretty much every constituent part of our politics can be translated into a pretty well tried and true video game mechanic. And so I started to kind of sketch a outline of what a game like this might look like and realized in the process of it, and just sort of given what I was doing at the time with HuffPost Hill, 
that a game like this would really benefit from a really fun encyclopedia. You know, an event pops up in the game and tells you that leadership is trying to push through an omnibus bill and a little, the word omnibus is, is omnibus bill is hyperlinked and it gives you kind of a pithy, amusing explanation of what an omnibus bill is. I realized that that would actually make a pretty interesting book and decided instead to focus on what seemed like a more practical thing for me to do at the time as a journalist, which was write a book. And that was the Beltway Bible and, and that A to Z humorous guide I, I wrote. But the notion of, of a political video game never left my mind, but always struck me more as just like a thing that would be fun to do and fun to play. And the social impact of it, frankly, at the time, wasn't really at the forefront for me, as obvious as it may have seemed. And frankly, it wasn't until, I guess, what was it, November 8th, 2016, when I was in the Midtown Hilton covering Donald Trump's election night rally, um, which people don't realize was a surprisingly intimate event. There were only like 300 people in the room, journalists included, um, which is also to say I was just kind of stuck with my own thoughts for the whole evening because <laughs> I couldn't really leave until the thing was over. And that was pretty late in the evening. And it was starting at that evening in, in subsequent days and months that I realized that I wasn't just dreaming about creating a video game about politics. I was dreaming about creating the first ever chance for anyone and everyone to experience how power is wielded on the ground in this country. And the more you think about it, the more I think revolutionary that is. And as highly as I may think of myself, I am not single-handedly capable of creating an in-depth video game universe. And so for the next several years, I basically set about building up a team of, of video game and business and entertainment and, and, and political experts to, to try and make this thing a reality. It strikes me as a very daunting universe to put together, given that it's human society with so much complexity, you talk about rules, you talk about people, you talk about issues, and it's a system that, you know, I, I, I spent four years in a PhD program in political science, which is another way of looking at the way things work. And there are so many things that are predictable, and there are so many things that are a chaotic system where the strangest outcomes happen, um, including the election of someone like Trump, how do you even begin to try to get close to making a environment complex enough to satisfy people who might want to wade into it? Oh, that's, I mean, that's the heart of the question. And of course, creating this world and a simulation video game is not unlike an impressionistic painting, you know? No constituent part of it is going to be vivid and thorough in a satisfactory way. You know, you zoom in extra close on a, I don't know, Seurat painting and you see a green blob and it, or a bunch of points, I guess, in his, in his case, and it doesn't really resemble much. And you zoom out a little bit and you start to realize, oh, it's, it's, it's some bushes. Like, okay, like those aren't maybe the world's most vivid, realistic bushes, but okay. And you zoom out the full way and you suddenly see this vivid and striking depiction of, I don't know, the Luxembourg Gardens or whatnot. And it has captured a, a scene and a place and a, a, a feeling um, in a way that one, some do argue, gets to the essence of it better than, say, a photograph could, because it has a way of filtering out. A painting is the original filtering of, of, of noise from, or signal from noise. And video game simulations are no different. You know, if you zoom in on any single part of this, you know, oh gosh, the economic simulation is, is ridiculously rudimentary. I mean, in this case, we're probably only going to have in each congressional district a kind of uh, a GDP based on kind of historical norms and, and an unemployment rate based on historical fluctuations as well. And that's incredibly rudimentary, but taken together with every other part of the game itself, often kind of these little rudimentary or simplified parts, 
what it does is it brings together an actually vivid depiction of a very complex system. I mean, we could think of a game like SimCity and it starts to feel daunting when you think about its constituent parts, like an urban urban sewage simulator and a, a traffic simulator and a social services simulator and a, a, a real estate value. So, hold on, that's way too much. But what happens is you can find ways to admittedly that are, you know, uh, belying the significance of each constituent part, when you can simplify the constituent parts um, in such a way that it still conveys that larger whole, it is something that is eminently feasible. Now, it takes considerable trial and error. The joke we make is that it's easier to program a 2D senator than it is a 3D rock, right? I mean, we can all agree that there were maybe I don't know, at most 10 things that a typical lawmaker is going to consider when they vote on a thing, right? Their views, their constituent views, their leadership's views, their party's platform, their donor's views, whatever it is that maybe their spouse was telling them that day. Identifying those things isn't the challenge. It's, of course, getting that balance correct, getting the sort of give and take of, you know, butterfly flaps its wings in the House and an avalanche happens in the Senate. That will take time to be sure. But getting cons- the constituent parts there um, is 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 among the lesser challenges. Now, to your point about, oh, well, gosh, how can you predict everything? You can't. You know, this game will be a constant work in progress. You know, we are not making this game in this universe as step one towards an agnostic video game company. We're not going to just make this game, shelve it, and go and make Orc Attack 7. Um, we are going to be building out the political arena universe and, you know, constantly trying to perfect in, in inherently in impossibly imperfectible thing. But there are a great many number of dynamics to our politics that we know probably aren't going to go anywhere, right? The role, well, anytime soon, the role of special interests, the way media cycles can shift political calculations and voter attitudes, the value of long-term grassroots organizing, the different nature of media buys and campaign strategies in different states. We're not going to be able to have a crystal ball and see exactly what's going to happen in 10 or 15 years, but we do know that there are a lot of things that are pretty constant, and those are the ones that we can make sure in the game and are in the game well. I know enough about uh, games as an industry now to know that a big game is like putting together a big movie, big blockbuster movie. They can have gigantic budgets. Big gaming companies can have teams of very large teams of people uh, from artists to uh, people. You know, I don't, I don't even know the whole team that you need to, but people take their degrees in building video games. Now Um, it's a huge, huge industry. How do you pull together a budget and a team sufficient to compete against the other games that that people are going to have as options to play? Well, you're absolutely right. And, and that goes to the heart of why I think there hasn't really been a quality political video game to date is because no one has really put the resources necessary into it. I mean, every time I see a foundation touting its $75,000 grant to make sure that Macedonian teenagers stay out of street gangs, I I wince a little uh, because it it reflects a collective, I think, misunderstanding of the fact you just very correctly outlined. I would, however, add to um, your point uh, that much like films, there is a whole spectrum of video game production scope and video game scope, you know, we don't think that this game is going to necessarily be the next Fortnite. I don't think that 200 million people across the globe are going to play Political Arena. But by that same token, not all games necessarily require the same budgets. You know, I, I joked earlier about the challenges of programming a 2D senator versus a 3D rock. Well, to be honest, the 3D rock is a lot more expensive and time-consuming. A 3D rock has a physics engine. A 3D rock has graphical shaders. A 3D rock has all of these variables that, for the complexity of politics, there are just more things you have to bake into that rock. 
And political arena is a two-dimensional game, literally. Politics itself is quite multidimensional, but it is a 2D game, which significantly lowers our cost. But that is not to say that this is a cheap or simple endeavor. I mean, we are in the midst of a capital campaign in which we're raising $2 million. I'm at that point where I'm thinking about things in terms of month runways and not actual raises, but I guess halfway through that, over the course of the several years that this is in production, we will have upwards of 50 different people working on this. And so you're absolutely right. This is not a simple undertaking. The hardest part of this for me in terms of just the process of me doing this was finding the right people to do it. We think of video games as being at the vanguard of entertainment, technologically speaking, and they are. But within the tech sector, video games is one of the oldest industries. It is incredibly consolidated. It has all the hallmarks of a highly mature industry. And so finding people able and willing and interested to do this, and I include in that um, developers and artists and folks with, with, I think, a necessary political interest and sensitivity and passion was a real challenge. And I think that's kind of our secret sauce is that we do have this kind of you know, superhero justice league of, of folks with political and video game and entertainment backgrounds who heretofore have never really uh, come together. This wasn't really your, your question, but I think it's important to note that a big reason this hasn't happened to date is that the video game industry is arguably the entertainment industry most estranged from our politics. There just isn't the type of cross-pollination that there is between film and politics and TV and politics. Former staffers who may decamp to Hollywood to shop around screenplays don't really decamp to the Bay Area or Vancouver or wherever to shop video games. And it's really that team that has been missing to date. Tell me about a key person or two or three that are part of the team. Absolutely. Well, to almost go about this um, sequentially in terms of, of who came on board, a kind of founding partner and advisor of mine, um, he's sort of somewhere between a co-founder and an advisor, given his sort of involvement and you know, things like ownership and things like that, is the irreplaceable Steve Place, who is a longtime political and marketing consultant. He advised the Obama White House on esports. He's one of the few people in Washington who kind of operates at the intersection of politics and video games. He's been instrumental in kind of doing a lot of behind the scenes work in bringing this together. Patrick Curry is uh, my production partner and also a kind of founding advisor of Wayside Press. He is the CEO and founder of Farbridge, a Austin, Texas based video game production studio that is making Political Arena and whom we've partnered with. Patrick has worked with and for um, companies as large and splashy as EA and NBC Universal and Activision. Our producers, one, Diana Williams, is a former executive at Lucasfilm. She produced Star Wars video games and films. Uh, our other producer, Dario Dizani, was formerly the head of franchise at AMC Network and oversaw things such as the Walking Dead video games. And then, of course, you have me, who spent his career really in the weeds of politics, who can sort of not just say what an omnibus bill is, but as a journalist, know what I don't know and reach out to the people that I need to, to fill in my gaps and the sort of understanding that no one person is going to possess all the knowledge necessary to make all this. And so it's a really exciting team of folks who really do come from uh, well, I don't know if I'll include myself in this, but certainly on the, the production and entertainment side of it, who really do come from the sort of pinnacle of these areas. And, and that is what's necessary to do this. And then a, a schmo like me. Tell me about building it as a business, right? You, you referenced having to raise money. What have you had to do to make it into, I mean, you, you call it wayside press, right? When you have a product business, it's a long investment in something that you build once and sell a lot of times, you hope. A lot of risk, possibly a big reward. How have you gone about 
creating that business that that is publishing this? Well, when I talk to people about the business side of this, and this is actually true of the impact side as well, it's important not to think of this as a discrete video game or indeed a video game franchise. But really, and this is, you know, not the world's sexiest elevator pitch, but an interactive platform to experience the politics of the world's most powerful country. The applications of that are numerous and I think are all profoundly socially beneficial. The first and most obvious one, the one that we've spent most of our conversation on is, is just commercial gaming, right? This is, I would argue, the largest subject gap in the video game industry, which itself is a $150 billion industry and will probably be a trillion dollar one much sooner than we expect. Something people forget quite often. One of the biggest misunderstandings about video games is that it is a quote unquote hits business. Now it can be. If you are building a $200 million Grand Theft Auto and you have a team of 200 people on it, you have to hit your marks, right? You, you have to have a big opening weekend and you have to have a big month six as well. Um, but for video games whose production and overhead are much more modest, video games, especially ones of depth that you might think of more as a platform, think Minecraft, for example, in many ways mirror traditional software, right? It is you identify an underserved audience and it's really about building out the product, knowing that the tech is there, uh, and really just getting that product to your audience. Video yeah. games aren't just things that people play for 45 minutes and put aside anymore. I mean, video games that are more platforms, that are sandboxes, that have large replay value, whether they are games like Minecraft or multiplayer shooter games, are games that people spend hundreds, sometimes even thousands of hours on. You know, if someone plays chess, if someone is a chess was a grandmaster, uh, we don't refer to them as being into board games. They are into chess. Discrete video games are becoming, in a sense, like software, like discrete products that people spend quite a bit, a bit of time with. And indeed, there is this emerging notion of games as a service, right, as opposed to SaaS, an increasing subscription model where people may buy or even be given for free a base game and then they subscribe for x number of dollars a year for any number of updates that will be released for the game i suspect at some point we will transition to that model that's not quite where our audience is yet in terms of other industries i mean obvious one is is education uh, a product like this i think will be an incredibly powerful curriculum tool for high school and collegiate uh, students and really anyone studying politics the gamification of our education system is one that everyone kind of agrees on is going to be increasingly significant and central thing to our education system. Civics is an area that I think would naturally benefit from gamification. It is something that is one overly dry, nowhere near illustrative enough. And since we all can't have internships, we need to find some way to give everyone the chance to really experience this stuff. And a third, to be honest, is, is, is journalism. Sure, the New York Times paid $3 million for Wordle, but they paid $500 million for The Athletic. One of the biggest drivers of traffic to the Washington Post website now is their new video game vertical, The Launcher. And this is one of the areas where I guess you could say this is more of a thesis bet than a kind of area where I have comps, is that interactive content is going to play an increasingly huge role in our media and how journalists tell their stories. And we've already seen attempts at this that have been remarkable. I mean, the New York Times a number of years ago, basically created something along the lines of a minimum wage simulator. It was a sort of multiple choice, choose your own adventure of how can a person honest to God survive in this country on a sub $15 minimum wage and oops, your car just broke down. And you could sort of think of it like Oregon Trail, but just trying to get by as a working class individual in this country. And so I suspect that this is going to have a lot of applications within the world of media. And and finally, and this is an interesting thing and something we weren't expecting as much, is the general inbound interest and excitement from folks, frankly, it's just kind of in political tech for this as a training tool, for the insights that could be gleamed when millions of people are making the decisions themselves and the types of things that can be learned about our democracy um, and about governance through that. So that's a long-winded answer to your question about how we're framing this business, but the short answer is we're giving anyone and everyone the chance for the first time ever to experience how this stuff works. 
there are a lot of opportunities there and gratefully and thankfully one that ones that we don't have to sell our souls to make a bit of change on. You've uh, multiple times sort of mentioned impact and wanting to make this socially beneficial and uh, things of that ilk. And also you did reference early on sort of a concern about authoritarianism in this country and its threat to the system that you've studied, written about for all this time. Tell me a little bit more about how you're thinking about that civic impact that, you know, that I buy could be part of people immersing themselves in learning about how the system works. Well, I, I think it's the same motivation and 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 philosophy that drives most journalism. I mean, the more people are familiar with a subject, the more they will be able to navigate the world and and sort of be savvier operators within it. There's this interesting sort of, I would say, almost hidebound Victorian morality that governs our, our view of video games that doesn't other entertainment mediums. You know. When the show Veep comes out, and it's one of my favorite TV shows of all time, and I think probably the best depiction of your boilerplate Washington operator of any of the political TV shows, journalists included, um, we don't really get people tutting the cynicism of the show or what that is going to imbue in viewers. In terms of the video game, I often get people worried that, well, gosh, what if people play as just like a Donald Trump character? And to tell you the truth, I hope they do. You know, if you forced me to say, well, people can only play one play style because this is a sort of proverbial sandbox where you can play as any type of politician you want. What I want them to do is play as a Donald Trump style reactionary populist, but with his discipline turned up. I want people to see what the playbook is there. I want people to be able to identify what it is that someone like that would do to gain and hold on to power. I want people to be able to separate, you know, the, the, the wheat from the chaff. I want people to be able to familiarize themselves with media cycles and they're often distracting irrelevant nature. You know, this game is going to feature outside events. It won't literally have Will Smith smacking Chris Rock at the Oscars. But it's going to have similar things because those are events that take people's mind off of things of important substance. Do you worry at all about like real politics, real government, while some of the practitioners are angling for power and maybe thinking of it as a game too much? It actually has real consequence for people's lives, affects their well-being in sometimes dramatic fashion. Do you worry about teaching people that politics is a game and that it ought to be played for power rather than to improve society? Well, for one thing, I, you know, we are not going to over-index on tragedy or humor or cynicism in this game, right? I mean, it is the framework is journalistic. And by that same token, there is a remarkably thin line between journalism and entertainment. And I don't mean that cynically or as a denigration of journalism, though certainly sometimes it can be far overly kind of uh, uh, entertainmentized. Um, but all journalism is attempt to make the world compelling and engrossing and to get people to care if it weren't, we wouldn't use adjectives. You know, <laughs> we kind of do already treat politics as a game and entertainment. You know, what this game does in effect is a strange kind of alchemy that lets people indulge whatever me versus them impulses they may have. And in doing so, whether they want to or not, they're going to develop a more visceral understanding of what makes this stuff tick. Maybe this is just me, but I, I think people then inevitably are going to take that knowledge and how they digest and metabolize the world of politics. They will be better able to not only one, 
have a better understanding of what it is that the people we vote into office do and thus be able to better assess candidates. They'll be better able to spend their time and money and resources as citizens, you know, and not focus on ridiculous things. And to that point about the Donald Trump with his discipline turned up character, I think they'll better be able to spot bad actors. And look, if giving them the chance to see what happens if, you know, Kanye West is president for a bit, helps them cultivate that, fine. If you're building something which in somehow in the back of your mind you'd love to play yourself, you've mentioned that, what's the biggest challenge that you experience in getting it to that level? Because I assume that's a pretty high level a universe to put together. What's been the biggest challenge in getting it to that point? Well, that goes to the heart of, of I think, our core design principle and challenge. Um, you really, You really got to the heart of it, which is and this goes to the heart of the entertainment part, of the business part, of the audience part, of the impact part, which is how do you get people to play this game? And how do you get them to keep playing the game? Because if they just play it for 20 minutes, you know, it, it's not really going to do anyone any good. I mean, they might have some fun and blow off some steam and that's all fine and good. Um, but the core design principle for this game is how do we let people who are new to politics, new to video games, or just new to the game, ease themselves into it, but at the same point, give them a rich political ecosystem with which to dive into. And to a certain extent, this is where politics is especially gameable because the notion of kind of onboarding or a tutorial portion of this video game kind of mirrors our politics. I mean, you know, let's think of the most cliched boilerplate central casting member of Congress, right? I am the seventh most successful insurance executive in the greater Tucson area. I am clearly the first among equals. I will run for Congress. And now I'm sort of speaking more as a boilerplate Republican candidate, you know, because government should be run like a business. And they get to Washington and they realize that being in Congress and the business of government is not necessarily like that of being an insurance executive. And like many freshman lawmakers, they have their hand held. They are instructed, you know, how to vote by leadership. They're instructed and advised who to hire by party officials. They're advised what to vote for by their leaders and to say nothing of donors. They are told who to beg money for. And in many ways, the game is going to recreate that process wherein one can begin in a more passive sense. Hey, here's here's something you need to vote on. How do you want to vote? Hey, this issue came up. You know, what do you think? Hey, you need to hire these people. Hey, you need to go beg these people for money. Hey, you need to go down to New Jersey Ave, whatever, Southeast or whatever it is, and sit in a room and dial for dollars for a gazillion hours. The game will not make you sit for hours and dial for dollars, by the way. Um, <laughs> Uh, but really creating that situation where someone begins more passively responding to things, responding to advice. And as time goes on, they begin to develop a more intuitive feel for these processes and systems and the sort of levers of power at their disposal. And then they can become a bit more proactive. You know, they start off as proverbial freshmen and they end up as proverbial Nancy Pelosi's and Mitch McConnell's. Thinking about who might adopt this, I, I would be con a little concerned that the people who want to play a political game are the people who don't need the education of a political game. They're already the political junkies. They're already the people like you and maybe me and maybe some people who listen to this. Whereas if you want a wide audience and if you want to have a civic impact, you want to bring people who don't understand into it. How do you think about designing it in a way that takes advantage of all of this intricate political knowledge that you find interesting, but is accessible? That's a great question. And I think I have two main answers to it. One, to your thing about people into politics sort of being a core audience for it. I think there's a lot of value to that inherently. Even anecdotally, we've had dozens of people join our game Discord talking about how they're poli-sci majors and just graduated and are running for municipal office. And 
I think even for those folks, you know, there is value in something like this, which will really crystallize and elucidate some of the ins and outs of how things work in Washington at the federal level nationally. You know, I think there are going to be a lot of, of, of younger people in high school and college who will be drawn to this game. And I think it will equip the next generation of people like you and me with a better starting point understanding of how this works. So that notion of kind of that more rarefied or elite or more politically focused audience, I still think there's tremendous value in that. But to your more central question about, you know, a wider audience, um, one, there is, I think, tremendous amounts of evidence and data out there demonstrating an appetite for something like this. Um, we can look both within video games, but also within just other spheres of entertainment. Video games are really just the last entertainment medium that haven't just voraciously consumed politics. I mean, politics is one of the most popular subjects across every other entertainment medium. Now, of course, the focal point of this film is, is we all are kind of aware now is maybe not the world's best thing, but you know, for a long time, the world, one of the most beloved films of all time was about arcane parliamentary maneuvering, and that was called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Politics as a subject isn't just remarkably popular across every other, not just entertainment medium, but corner of our lives, but the constituent parts are. There are untold number of films and TV shows and novels about lobbying, about political reporters, about grassroots organizers. And on the video game side, there are untold number of video games that have sold millions of copies that simulate interesting experiences that have to do with the wielding and exercise of power. And this is where I think people often just don't truly appreciate how freaking big the video game industry is. And not just big, but stratified. You know, three games, you know, and this is sort of my presentation to folks. I, I love to cite these games. Uh, Power Wash Simulator, Goat Simulator, and American Truck Simulator. Those are all video games that are either on track to or have already sold a million copies. It is in that context that I do not doubt for a second that there is a huge audience, not just of hardcore strategy video gamers who want to play a game like Political Arena, and not just even more casual video gamers who tend to wade into this genre of the subject is sort of inherently popular, appealing enough. But I think there are a lot of people out there who maybe don't play video games too often who might be inclined to check this out because it doesn't look like the stereotypical version of a video game. No one is slashing each other with swords or firing weapons. I mean, <laughs> weapon policy certainly factors into it. And I think the way people engage with politics in every other corner of their lives, I mean, a lot of people, I think, will want to check this one out. I don't know. Goat simulation sounds pretty tempting to me. <laughs> it's actually a lot of fun. <laughs> and, and certainly better than thinking about Marjorie Taylor Greene or something. <laughs> uh, I noticed that you got some coverage in on NPR and in the New York Times. How did you obtain that? Well, the funny thing was I, I went into this thinking that, well, as a journalist, I know all these journalists and they'll want to write about me. And of all the press we ended up getting, I think only one person, and this was like market watch, was someone I knew personally. I certainly benefited from just having a network of folks in DC in the political world and in journalism. We held a Kickstarter campaign in, in fall of last year, um, both just because the funds would help us kind of get to the next stage of production and also you know, just kind of as a thing to announce what we were doing um, and to be kind of a uh, centerpiece around which we could kind of build a early publicity and marketing, uh, build early publicity and marketing around. And to that end, you know, I, I told all the folks in my network what we were doing and asked them to tweet about it. And I think it was from that noise that we ended up, I was approached by, you know, Juana Summers and NPR and Blake Hounchell at the Times and you know, folks who whose work I've admired for a long time, but I didn't actually personally know. Um, you know, I think it, this is a thing that this is an endeavor that, you know, for the longest time, I was worried people would think is kind of inherently ridiculous and laugh at me. And, and it's not to say there haven't been folks like that. But overwhelmingly, 
people in politics, people in journalism, people just like video games and are passive Rachel Maddow watchers, I think really get it. You know, this is the subject of the 21st century, right? I mean, politics has become, uh, I mean, to the very point of your podcast. I mean, it is, it is the, the battleground and that the world's largest medium hasn't seriously tackled it is mind boggling. And I think even if folks don't fully appreciate the size and scope of video games, I think they do have an inkling of that point. Do you ever worry that if you demonstrate that a universe in this area is valuable, that one of the big gaming companies will try to beat you? You can't make video games overnight, even if you wanted to. There's just like, it's just, there's sort of a minimum 18 month, if you're even lucky, that governs. It doesn't matter if you're EA or if you're someone in their, you know, just like garage on their spare. So you have first mover advantage. There's a first mover advantage. And, and to my point earlier, one thing that separates politics from other subjects is that most of what matters in it doesn't happen in the public eye, right? It happens either behind closed doors or just kind of off camera. It's not always pernicious. Like most people will never be involved with grassroots organizing or or behold retail politicking. You need the kind of uh, uh, multi-industry cross-pollination that we've put together with this team. And that even before EA or someone else could start making a game like this, they would have to actually assemble that team. And it's funny, when I talk to folks in politics who care about our democracy, I I kind of end up, and these are the people that I inevitably respect the most of all the folks I'm talking to in all this, I end up saying kind of the most hostile and threatening thing, which is, be glad that we're making this. We're not going to be perfect and we will screw up. But I shudder to think what would happen if a traditional video game studio were first mover on this, you know, would they both sides voter fraud? Again, can't see my air quotes. Would they not even bother with institutional racism and sexism because, oh God, you know, we don't want our shareholders to. Do you personally control that kind of bent of the game? By personally control, you mean just like, you know, like, can you lose control of that? Once you create an institution that has a political purpose, which yours seems to ultimately have one, sometimes you want to make sure that that continues out into the future, that it doesn't, you know, like you get bought by the Trump campaign and turned into a, I'm coming up with an outlandish (laughs) scenario, and turned into a training ground for uh, less civically uh, positive ideas. Oh, absolutely. Um, that that thought plagues me. And to a certain extent, I have been, I mean, one, just kind of in, amazed by all the inbound interest that we've had from folks in media, folks in politics. There's been this collective sense in both realms of, of everyone kind of slapping their palm to their forehead and saying like, Oh, right. Video games. We forgot. And I welcome that. And I'm, I'm also initiating quite a bit of that. I'm reaching out to folks in advocacy organizations, folks in politics, folks in nonpartisan civics organizations, folks in media, folks in journalism, because again, I can't overstate the significance. Now we may not get it right, but if we even get this 20% right, a platform, an engrossing one that lets anyone experience how power is wielded in this country is something that we are all stakeholders in. And to that end, and to kind of your question about the mission-driven part of it going awry, I've just been talking to folks, you know, and oftentimes there's nothing more frustrating than a call where you don't really have an ask. But as often as not, it's just me talking to them being like, hey, listen, I'm doing this, we're doing this, and I kind of want you to have my number. You know, we've been having great conversations, for example, with the wonderful folks that run for something. Uh, we don't necessarily know what that will mean. You could imagine putting them in the game. Well, that's a funny thing, too, is, I mean, advocacy organizations. Like, you remember Second Life, everyone was building their, I mean, there's a million <laughs> different ways you could go, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those where I just kind of want a lot of people to 
have my number, both because as a journalist, I need profound amounts of input and viewpoints and opinions for something like this. But also because this is a, I mean, and maybe I'll just totally biff it. And it's why I'm trying to build a large, diverse team to make sure we don't. But when we do inevitably screw up and we will at times, like I want people to have a line to me, you know, I want. They get in the game and they tell you what's wrong about it or what could be better. Or do you mean that? I have no idea. Yeah, I have no doubt that they will too. And just, I mean, you know, also to your point, I want to build a community around this game of people who care about our democracy. You know, I want there to be a collective understanding both of what it is we're trying to do and also how we're going about it, right? Like I'm going to be out there talking about the thrill of power and all this stuff. And that is the inherent sort of calculus, right? It is, it is the vegetables as dessert, but I also want people to know that that is toward a much higher end than just, you know. That's a, it sounds like a hard line to walk. What's left to, for you when you're shipping a product, you want to ship it as soon as you can, not too soon. <laughs> and I would think you want to set it up so that you, you continue to ship it, that it's uh, iteratively improving as frequently as possible. What's left to, to get to that first version out there? Yep. Um, so I get the question is sort of where, where, where are we now and, and where are we going? Um, right now we are, we are making the damn thing. Um, <laughs> and that has its, its ups and downs and twists and turns. Well, actually uh, stepping back a moment, um, video games themselves actually for all of the ossified processes and systems that exist in this industry one thing that is actually really wonderful about it is that there are a lot of frameworks in which you can iteratively release a game, get consumer feedback, and really perfect it before the full non-alpha beta version goes live. What I'm thinking about specifically and referring to specifically is um, what's called early access. So you may have heard of Steam. It is the world's largest merchant of computer, that is computer as opposed to console or mobile video games. Uh, we'll be releasing on PCs and Macs first, and thus we'll be probably selling most of our copies through Steam. Like I said, Steam has a program called Early Access in which uh, developers can release their video games before all of the features are in the game. Um, at a discounted price, of course, the game has to be stable. You can't just release a you know buggy piece of garbage and otherwise people will let you hear it. Um, but what that allows you to do is you know let people who really want to experience the game early, even if it's not fully completed. And in our case, I think that will be probably more a matter of just adding depth to the various components of politics. You know, making that proverbial. Uh, Syrah painting from earlier, a bit more vivid as time goes on. It's not like, and now we have the Senate. And what that will allow us to do is really get feedback and see what's resonating with people, how it's resonating. Like, oops, you know what? Maybe we thought that this was the way to gamify lobbying, and it turns out it's not. And really allow us to build a platform for the long run, you know, so that when we, we finally release the full thing, and, you know, much like a, a play in previews, reviewers do not review early access games. They'll give sort of first impressions and things like that. And to that end, we'll be focusing on early access. That's what that first release will be later this year. And then we'll, we'll look to a full release, probably towards election day of 2023. And then we'll be, to use the term port, releasing on other video game platforms like Xboxes and Playstations. And the thing that we're, you know, really want to get to eventually is to turn this game into a kind of persistent online political world where people can actually play with and against each other. And that's for, for me, really, that's going to be the most exciting part when we get to that point. What should I have asked you that I haven't? Um, <laughs> uh, are you, are you seeking psychiatric help? <laughs> Why are you doing this? Um, oh, I thought you were referring to me and oh. <laughs> I see that you're referring to yourself. I'm really, yeah, um, no. And, and actually my therapist thinks it's a good idea. I'll have, you know, well, you know, 
I don't know if this is necessarily a question you should ask per se, but just something that I, I, I hope your audience understands is just how big video games are. It amazes me sometimes the disconnect between, and this is generational, right? A lot of the people who are running things these days are of a generation that didn't necessarily grow up with video games of, of tremendous depth and complexity. There is a kind of dividing line between people who grew up with Donkey Kong and Space Invaders and people who grew up with The Sims and SimCity and all of that. And I just hope people start to appreciate how multifaceted and multidimensional this medium is. And really, even if they don't play video games, and even if they're worried that if they say they do, people will think they are mouth-breathing nerds, that they get over it and take the time to really familiarize themselves with the medium because the role that interactive content is going to play, forget just in our politics and media, but in society writ large over the next 10, 15, 50 years is almost unfathomable. And I, I, I hope people, um, even if they aren't themselves gamers, really just take the time to familiarize themselves with what this is because it's a lot more than just Fortnite and, and their kid playing Minecraft in their living room. Well, it's uh, been very enjoyable to talk to you and to hear about what you're up to. I wish you success with it. Is there anything else you want to say? No, just I, I, I appreciate you inviting me on. I mean, we ourselves have our own constituencies and we really do appreciate any chance to um, have the chance to, to speak to folks in, in kind of your proverbial constituency. You know, this is something that we, we think is important and we, we really want people who care about our democracy to, to know about. Excellent. That was Elliot Nelson. He is at politicalarena.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.